na 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 Batman! The closing credits faded of the boy's favorite show, replaced by a ringing phone in the kitchen of his small Pittsburgh home. Trembling, lanky Jim Shooter picked up that phone. It was 1967, and this 14-year-old boy had a part-time job many of his friends would have dreamed of. A dream job in concept, that is, but maybe a nightmare job in fact. Because as soon as young Jim picked up the phone, the torrent started, as it always did every Thursday evening. Uh, Hello, Jim mumbled as his trembling hands held the phone. The rumbling, overwhelming New York accent that greeted him seemed full of angry malice. Shooter, what the fuck were you thinking with that Legion of Superheroes script you sent last week? Your work is always such shit. Look at panel panel two of your script. Jim turned away from the receiver, holding it at arm's length as the invective assaulted him like a physical assault. Tears in his eyes, young Jim mumbled, Okay, and yes, sir, until the fiery rhetoric faded. Yes, sir, I'll try to do better next time. Yes, sir, I can come to New York during my winter break. Yes, sir, I'll take that assignment for a Supergirl script. Yes, sir, goodbye. That was the life of young Jim Shooter, circa 1967. Shooter tells the story again and again of the weekly assault that editor Mort Weisinger would bring to him every week after the Batman TV show ended. It became part of Shooter's weekly ritual to sit and take abuse as the youngest allegedly worst writer working for the famously tyrannical editor Weisinger. Little did young Jim Shooter know this experience would prime him for one of the most unique careers in American comics. Hi, I'm Jason Sachs, writer of the American Comic Book Chronicles 1970s and the 1990s, as well as co-editor of Jim Shooter Conversations, published by the University Press of Mississippi. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. As you might have guessed, our subject this week is Jim Shooter. It was a fluke that Jim Shooter was writing comics professionally in 1967. He was the younger, youngest writer ever to script a comic book for the American comic book industry. And he still is the youngest ever. And he went to work for perhaps, perhaps the most conservative editor in the comics industry, a man known for his belittling of nearly every major figure in comics at the time. In fact, Jerry Shooter, co-creator of Superman, was one of Weisinger's stable of writers at the time. But the editor regularly called a living legend over the hill, out of fashion, lucky to have a job. As Shooter described his, his origin in a 1968 interview, When I was 14 and still occasionally reading comics, it dawned on me that people actually got paid for creating such junk. Immediately, I set out to get a, get in on a good thing and wrote and illustrated a script for Legion of Superheroes. I had written other such scripts before, usually Spider-Man, but for once I did it in real earnest. I was so pleased I sent it to editor, DC Comics. It took quite a while, but finally I got a reply, a nice letter from Mort Weisinger, asking me about my career plans, telling me about opportunities in comic books, inviting me to New York for a visit, and best, asking for another script. That was enough for me. I wrote a giant two-book Legion plot and poured my heart into the story and art. I mailed it and waited. It clicked. On February 10, 1966, a Mr. Weisinger called me from New York to offer me $200 for my story and assign me a Supergirl script. But Shooter persisted with Weisinger. He wrote stories for nearly all Weisinger's line of superhero comics, aside from Lois Lane, earning his family a steady living during a time when his father, a Pittsburgh steelworker, had trouble holding down consistent work. Shooter worked for Weisinger for about four years, producing some of the most classic Legion of Superheroes and Superman stories of his era. 
then abruptly quit when he graduated high school. As Shooter said in the 1974 interview, he was a hard-nosed businessman. He paid for my work and thought that was enough. He caused a kind of pathological fear of telephones in me. Every call from New York included liberal griping from Mort. Too many words per panel. Over the page limit. Not on time. Why can't you write like you used to? How the hell can we get a cover out of this? Typical editor stuff. I knew the complaining was natural. I knew Mort wasn't the type to hand out praise. But this didn't help. It got so I was afraid to pick up the phone. Mort was always right. Business-wise, anyway. I was invariably naive, uninformed, and downright stupid oftentimes. I'm sure that in many ways I caused him more problems than I was worth. He made it clear that he expected the same from me as he would from any writer on his staff. On the other hand, it was very hard to deal with him, the situation being what it was. As it progressed, our relationship got more and more strained. I felt more and more inadequate. I can't say it was more its fault. Let's call it extenuating circumstances. At any rate, it reached its worst when I became a senior in high school. I was tired of trying. The money never seemed enough for my mother. The stories never seemed to be enough for Mort. And my last chance to being a kid was to be a kid was slipping by. I tried to do it all. Write for Mort, go to school and get good grades so I could nail down a scholarship and have a little fun, like football games, dances, parties and stuff. But it was too much and it all suffered. I missed 60 days of school that year. My grades fell, my work output dropped, and I still missed a lot of high school life. The bright side is that I did get a scholarship, thanks to the fact that I clobbered the National Merit Scholarship qualifying test. And I think I did some of my best work that year, although not nearly enough to please more. Shooter's scholarship was for a university, scho- uh, university scholars appointment at NYU. plus an overlapping national merit $6,000 maximum. So he was all set to go to New York. As Weisinger continues, but by this time, my difficulties with Mort had reached ahead. We had a telephone argument about my working arrangements would be when I came to New York. He really wasn't prepared for that. And though the lecture I got was probably justified, I had just about had it with him. On top of the financial disaster and personal chaos, I just couldn't take the harassment. You know, listener, let that sink in for a minute. At a time when most kids think of their lifetime jobs, when people begin to aspire to doing to do the thing they'll do for the rest of their life, Jim Shooter walked away from a gig that paid him well because the harassment got to be too much. Sounds like a kid walking away from a harassing youth sports coach or an abusive household, doesn't it? Looked in that life, light. Shooter's a hero, a survivor, a man who was able to transcend his early obstacles to become the man who transformed comics to be the industry we know today. See, after college and a, several years working in the Pittsburgh advertising industry, the 1974 interview I mentioned before pulled Shooter back into comics. He started writing Legion of Superheroes again for DC, but quickly found himself dissatisfied with editor Mur- Murray Boltonoff and found his way back to Marvel Comics, which was then close to death due to declining sales, bad management, and poor decision-making. This is the fact that many people don't know. Only the phenomenal success of the Star Wars adaptation in 1977 saved the company. During that time, Shooter worked as an associate editor at Marvel. At the 1977 Marvel staff Christmas party, Shooter was announced as Marvel's new editor-in-chief. His new chaff, 
his new staff was not excited. As Shooter said in the 2016 interview, I became editor-in-chief on the first working day of January 1978. We wanted to wait until after the 1st of January to tell everybody. When Stan Lee announced that at the Christmas party, you could have heard a pin drop. Editor Archie Goodwin and his wife are boring holes in me with their eyes. Everyone else is terrified, thinking, the monster is in charge. What are we going to do? But after that ignominious beginning, Shooter slowly turned around Marvel. He took action to make sure his creators met their deadlines by scheduling fill-in stories. He installed assistant editors. He got rid of creators he felt were dead weight and a controversy that still dogs him today. But he also delivered a royalty uh, program, which eventually would bring some of his creators astounding wealth, move Marvel into new media arrangements which brought series like Transformers and G.I. Joe to the company, and elevated creators like Chris Claremont, John Byrne, Bill Sienkiewicz, and especially Frank Miller into comics superstardom. Shooter's eight-year tenure at the helm of Marvel is one of the most controversial of any comic editor and company. On one hand, he encouraged some of the most innovative work of his era in the hands of some of its most prominent creators. Comics like Walt Simonson's Thor, Sienkiewicz's New Mutants, and Elektra Assassin, and Miller's Daredevil were critical and commercial hits and some of the most loved comics of their era. And while comics like G.I. Joe, Amazing Spider-Man, and especially X-Men weren't critical hits at the time, they were massively commer- massive commercial hits that enabled Marvel to control an astounding 60-plus percent of the 1980s comic market month after month. It also kind of shows that even a book like G.I. Joe, which was kind of looked down on at the time, has proven to be a true Marvel classic. Uh, many readers go back and reread uh, Paul Smith-era X-Men or John Romita Jr.-era X-Men and just love those books because of their boldness, brightness, and high storytelling quality. Shooter's biggest hit and one of the most iconic comics of all time was Marvel Superheroes The Secret Wars. Critics hated Secret Wars. They complained about bloat, about comics that were tie-ins to toy lines, about the dumbness of the stories. Critics compared the unflashy art in Secret Wars by Mike Zeck unfavorably to the slick art by George Perez on DC's contemporary Crisis of Infinite Earths. Crisis of Infinite Earths, excuse me. But the fans didn't care. They went crazy for the comic, which transported some of Marvel's most iconic heroes to a faraway planet controlled by a godlike creature called the Beyonder. Shooter gave Spider-Man a black costume, installed She-Hulk as a member of the Fantastic Four, and set the thing up as a professional wrestler. Secret Wars was one of the best-selling books of the 1980s. That 1984 and 85 series was Shooter's high point at the House of Ideas, but his success would prove to be short-lived. The new universe was created to celebrate Marvel's 25th anniversary with a new set of superheroes, but that line, which was Shooter's brainchild, was subverted from the very beginning. As Shooter told me in 2016, New Universe was a disaster. It was dead on the ground when it started because another one of those deals when I got called upstairs. With Nancy Allen, promotions, the licensing people, other executive types. The discussion was, what were we going to do in terms of our 25th anniversary? They're all like, well, Jim. One of the first things I said was, I have talked about this Big Bang thing. And if DC doesn't want to do it, we can do it. The circulation guy looks at me and says, We've got something that's selling gangbusters for 70% of the market, and you want to stop it and start over? I got shouted down. 
I said, it's not import, as important as for us as it is for DC. We're okay. Why don't we create a new universe? Celebrate the, celebrate the birth of this one with the birth of another one. They liked that. I had a big budget. I had about $120,000 to develop these characters. We were going to guarantee royalties because why would someone like Walt leave Thor where he thinks he's going to get royalties and do something where he's not sure it's going to happen? We were going to guarantee royalties, set a big promotion budget. They were going to put money into it because they were making so much money. Fine. We start on it. Then not long after that, that's when they make the moves to start selling the company. I get called upstairs. My budget's cut badly. A week later, I'm called upstairs again. My budget's eliminated. I say, you mean you don't want to do this? They said, no, you have to do it. You have to do it with staff people. If you look at a lot of the new universe stuff, it's assistant editors, Archie Goodwin. New artists you've never heard of, some of whom turned out to be Wills Portacio, some of whom are Mark Texiera. It was a sinking ship, and everyone knew it. But, you know, dear listener, that's not to say the new you didn't deliver some interesting material. Shooter's Starbrand, for instance, is a fascinating quasi-autobiography of a slacker womanizer who really doesn't want to be a hero. And though Shooter had just brought Marvel unparalleled success with Secret Wars, he soon soon found himself an outsider at the company he revived from near bankruptcy. The inevitable Secret Wars 2 was kind of a flop. Although it sold well, it was hated by everybody, including the fans. His star writer-artist John Byrne had left for DC Comics, and Shooter found himself at war with Marvel's management team about how they handled their staff. As he told me, when unscrupulous owners are trying to sell a business, nothing matters but the bottom line, because non-service and especially intellectual property entertainment businesses are sold for a multiple of earnings. If you're a vice president or a key man, as I was in that situation, you have two choices. You can play along with the owners, help them sell your people down the river, and be richly regardless, regard, rewarded. Barry Kaplan told me they gave him $3 million for his, cap, for his cooperation. Or you can become a labor leader. I chose to be a labor leader. I fought against the owners' depredations. They quickly came to hate me, but as Joe Calamari once told me, They couldn't fire me because none of them knew anything about comics. And per Joe, you're the only guy who will help me replace me. Who could replace you? The owners eliminated the pension program, eviscerated health care, and ended the 401k matching plan. and Cut every expense possible to make more money on the bottom line, even if it was just temporary, so their multiple would get bigger. They even tried to eliminate the royalty plan retroactively. On April 15th, 1987, Jim Shooter was fired as vice president of Marvel Comics. And yet, in the roots of his being fired were the roots of his next success. Entertainment lawyer Steve Masarski contacted Shooter to put together a kind of Marvel on Ice show. And though that never took off, the team quickly moved to buy out Marvel when new owner New World Pictures quickly put Marvel on the market after their purchase. And you know what? Though that purchase didn't go through, Shooter and his partners moved to create... Uh, let's try that again. And yet, in the roots of his being fighter were the roots of his next success. Entertainment lawyer Steve Masarski contacted Shooter to put together a kind of Marvel on Ice show. And that, though that never took off, the team quickly moved to buy out Marvel when New World Pictures quickly put Marvel on the market after the purchase. As one story goes, Shooter and his team got to a very high bidding number but uh, ended up having trouble getting financing to complete the purchase. 
Though that purchase didn't go through, Shooter and his partners moved to create a new comic line, one of the most important of the 1990s, Valiant. Valiant would quickly become legendary, but it started inauspiciously, as lines of comics adapted from Nintendo and the World Wrestling Foundation, as they were known then, didn't take off. Facing quick bankruptcy, Shooter and his team threw caution to the wind. In May 91, Valiant released the first chapter of Steel Nation in Magnus Robot Fighter, following, followed in September 91 with Solar Man of the Atom. Though fails were slow to recognize these revivals, Shooter was once again was once again at last able to write comics that appealed to his sensibilities. If his new company was going to fail, Shooter figured he may as well fail at doing work he cared about. For several months, sales were moderate, with the first issue of Magnus selling about 80,000 copies and seller around 60,000, with subsequent issues selling in the $50,000 to $60,000 range. 60,000 copy range. However, a prominent mention in the fifth issue of the new industry magazine Wizard noted, has anyone noticed that all the Valiant titles are slowly climbing up the price charts? Wizard 7 in- includes several Valiant-focused features and helps spur dramatic increases in, in growth. And suddenly, the line started exploding in sales. The monumental Unity crossover helped spur sales in the hundreds of thousands per issue. But the success wore on Shooter and his team. He reportedly worked 500 days in a row to deliver the burgeoning line, which by then included series such as Exo, Man of War, Harbinger, and the amazing Rye, many of which he wrote. But just as quickly as the line was successful, Shooter was fired from Valiant. The reasons given for his firing are many. Shooter alleges that Masarski and his girlfriend, turned fiancé, pushed Shooter out in order to make more money themselves, that Valiant's lawyers offered him an onerous employment contract. There are other stories as well. I heard at least three or four other stories. We'll, we'll stay with that one just for this podcast. But the success of Valiant and Image Comics, particularly in 1991 and 92, opened up a huge market for new publishers by 1993. With an investment from a card company, Shooter assembled the team to work for a new publisher with an appropriate name, Defiant Comics. Their titles were oriented around a central plot line concerning a living planet named the Org and five genetically modified humans who must work together to stop an impending alien invasion. Together with the comics, a a massive merchandising effort was planned, including action figures, lunchboxes, and trading cards. The River Group, which owned Defiant in addition to a trading company, licensed the properties a card set as an album and an album. As a result, in the first issue of their flagship title, Plasm, that was released as a set of trading cards in the custom binder. The River Group made millions from the set. Shooter and his team received only a small royalty. Defiant seemed at times to be cursed, or maybe the victim of acrimony from its competitors. Marvel sued Defiant over the name of flagship title, Plasm. The financial damages from the massive court costs amounted to over $300,000, coupled with the loss of various merchandising meal deals and the bad comics market, put Defiant into bankruptcy. Though representatives from other publishers and media outlets considered buying Defiant, the company went out of business on September 1, 1994, just a year after its first solicitation. Altogether, the company released barely three dozen comics during its first year of existence, and nearly all the comics met with retailer and consumer indifference. 
Several shooter, several suitors considered buying Defiant. Some actually came close to consummating their purchase. New Line Entertainment sought a deal, and Shooter actually accepted the deal from Savoy Pictures before that deal was scotched. Another potential investor was Broadway Video Entertainment, a video production company that delivered such popular TV series as Saturday Night Live and Late Night with Conan O'Brien. When Defiant folded, investor Winston, Winston Folks made an arrangement with the president of Broadway, Eric Ellibogan, to hire members of Defiant's creative team to develop a property based on Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Following the expiration of his contract with Defiant, Shooter received a car from Ellibogan, telling him the development team needs a leader. Eventually, Shooter explained Ellibogan, quote, offered to set to start a comics division, owned 50-50 by Broadway Video Entertainment and me, but with BVE Lauren Michaels as a general partner. Though comics industry sales continued to slump badly as 1995 dawned, there were hopes that Broadway's wealthy investors would help the company to survive and thrive. Sales, however, were terrible, with series like The Powers That Be selling close to a mere 5,000 copies per issue. Eventually, Broadway Entertainment was sold to Golden Books, who had no interest in managing a line of comic books. They pulled the plug on the ailing company, and Jim Shooter was once again out of an editorial job. Shooter had one last gasp at creating a new comics line. In 1998, longtime friend Chuck Rosansky approached Shooter with the idea of launching yet another company to be called Daring Comics. Always, again, capitalized per Shooter's favorite naming scheme. Rosansky and Shooter would co-finance the project, which would premiere with two limited edition titles. Though Shooter did some press for the comics, work on them never got beyond the talking stage. That following year, Shooter returned to the latest incarnation of Valiant for a six-issue series called Unity 2000. That series aimed to unite Shooter's original version for the Valiant characters with a failed 1998 reboot of the Valiant line and would have led to revivals of Shooter Eric, Eric characters such as Exo Man of War and Shadow Man. Shooter completed work on all six issues of the series, but only three saw print before the latest version of the Valiant line went bankrupt. Since then, Jim Shooter has made some abortive attempts to get back into comics. In 2008, he wrote a run on Legion of Superheroes that was poorly received. In 2010, he launched a mini-line at Dark Horse Comics featuring characters including Dr. Solar and Magnus. Those lasted a maximum of eight issues. He's still working as a consultant and runs custom publishing company Illustrated Media Group. But despite his relatively quiet ending, Jim Shooter was one of the most important forces in comics history. Jim Shooter remains a key figure in the field as well as a true original. No other writer entered the industry at such a young, young age or had such success and rancor, often simultaneously, as head of one of the major comics companies. His actions and editorial decisions during his tenure at Marvel Comics, while they had their critics and detractors, contributed to a widespread revival of interest in comics and helped to revolutionize key aspects of the industry, whether it consisted of creators' rights, compensation and negotiation, or direct market distribution. Moreover, Shooter's career has significantly impacted popular culture, the ramifications of which are still apparent today. 
from the structure of the director direct market to creator-friendly policies of the major comics publishers to his concern with realism in comics to now perennial event comics with multimedia tie-ins, such as Civil War and the New 52, which also now informs the crossover nature of Marvel's on-screen adaptations with the, its big-screen version of the event storyline, The Infinity Gauntlet, Shooter's imprint is everywhere in mainstream comics. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.